You give Teller from Jerusalem 20 minutes, and he'll give you the education of a lifetime. King of the storytellers and the Shakespeare of the Torah world, here is Rabbi Hanok Teller. Hello out there in podcast land. Welcome to Teller from Jerusalem, and I am your host, Hanok Teller. Israel Declaration of Independence declared the establishment of a Jewish state in the land of Israel to be known as the State of Israel. Remarkably, once the name was proclaimed, everyone realized instinctively that it could, in fact, have no other name. The second stage and phase of Israel's battle for independence commences after the state was declared. There is nothing warlike in the declaration, but this event was significant and continued to be very significant. In this new phase of the war, which began in the morning of May 15, when Arab armies from five countries attacked, it would last eight months concluded with an armistice. But the war was not constant fighting. It was fighting, and then a ceasefire, and over and over and over again, until the final armistice in January 1949 between the Jewish side and the Egyptian side, bringing to an end a surprising and stunning Jewish victory in this war. Israel, now an official country, found itself pitted against the armies of five Arab countries and the British troops of the Mandate had departed. It began with an aerial attack on Tel Aviv by Egyptian warplanes. There were about 650,000 Jews against approximately 40 million Arabs on the Arab side. Israel had 30,000 fighters. The Arab side had an unlimited supply of fighters it could enlist in the battle. The key advantage of the Arabs were their weapons, and according to the estimates of the Haganah, there were 40 tanks on the Arab side and two on the Jewish side, 300 armored vehicles on the Arab side, and 12 on the Jewish side, 75 combat aircraft on the Arab side, and zero on the Jewish side. There was no Jewish air force, and the Jews were literally fighting for their lives. The first month would be the most deadly. Israel would lose 876 soldiers and some 300 civilians. The Haganah was not only facing armies from five different countries, including Iraq, which did not even share a border with Israel, but these armies were augmented by troops from Sudan, Saudi Arabia, and Yemen. In the beginning of the war, Israel did not fare well, and Jerusalem was cut off. Ben-Gurion said that it was a race against time. If we hold out for two weeks, we will win. Ben-Gurion wanted to retake Jerusalem, and Yigal Yadin, who was the Haganah's chief of operations, he would later become the chief of staff, said that the soldiers allocated for this battle to take Latrun were very ill-prepared and had very meager and outdated weapons. By the way, the name Latrun comes from during the time of the Crusaders. They made a fort called Letron le Chevalier, the fort of the night. The Arabs found this term to be too long and too complicated to pronounce, so they shortened it to Latrun. So the fighters to take Latrun were survivors from the death camps. They had been in detention in Cyprus, and it was inhumane to subject them to this uphill attack. Ben-Gurion understood and was undeterred, and the attack was a failure. Ariel Sharon, who was part of this attack, he was the hero of the Yom Kippur War, a later prime minister, was wounded in this attack. Later, a second attack was organized, and this too also failed. Officials put the number of troops killed at 139, but many suggest that the number was far higher. 
Latrun would be remembered as the place where the blood of Holocaust survivors was spilled. And this was not the only place. Israel was so desperate to defend itself that Holocaust survivors directly off the boat to Israel would be pressed into battle and some were killed and buried without even their names being known. Their training had consisted of marching around with broomsticks and cypress, at best wooden guns, as the British would not allow real weapons, meaning that they never underwent combat training or target practice. What Israel's military leaders subjected these tormented arrivals to, most of whom were Holocaust survivors, is definitely worthy of a sober review, but their death is testimony to the fact that given what they had seen and experienced in Europe, the creation of a Jewish state mattered more to them than anything, even their lives. After the fall of Latrun, there was another devastating loss for the Jews, which was the fall of Jerusalem's Jewish quarter in the Old City. It fell to the Arab Legion, the best trained and equipped of the Arab soldiers, who were still fighting under British commanders. Five days after the foundation of the State of Israel in 1948, the battle for the Jewish quarter escalated. Outside the walls, the Israelis had the upper hand. Within the walls, the Israelis were fighting large Jordanian forces. The battle lasted ten days and nights, with heavy Jordanian artillery fire. The Israelis surrendered and the old city passed into the hands of the Jordanians. The Jordanians were highly trained and fully equipped. For ten days and nights the battle raged. On May the 28th, the Israelis surrendered. Jews had been exiled from Jerusalem by Babylonian King Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BCE and again under the Romans in 70 CE. And now once again lines of tearful Jews made their way out of Jerusalem in captivity. The Jordanians, like the conquerors that had come before them, would show the city no mercy. They would turn synagogues into stables and use cemetery gravestones as latrines. Nineteen years would lapse until Jews could again pray at the Western Wall and visit Judaism's most sacred site with the liberation of Jerusalem in the Six-Day War. The Haganah gave up trying to capture Latrun and sought a different way to bring supplies to Jerusalem. On the eve of a truce called for June 11th, Ben-Gurion argued for a third attack as commanders were opposed. The Latrun fortress controlled the high ground, and there were no trees to shelter or hide attackers, and thus totally cut off access to Jerusalem. The only solution to save the 100,000 Jewish residents of Jerusalem and keep Jerusalem as part of the new Israel that had just been declared was to find a bypass to Jerusalem averting Latrun which proved to be impregnable. Whoever controlled the high ground of Latrun controlled Jerusalem. But how could Jerusalem be saved from starvation and an absence of supplies and weapons as there no, was no way to bypass Latrun? Historically, desperation and necessity often give birth. The name of the child that was born in this frantic struggle was the Burma Road, named after supply route from Burma to China built during the Second, War, Second Sino-Japanese War, running through rough mountainous country. This enabled the Chinese to be supplied in their struggle against Japan. Recreating a viable passageway from what had been an ancient path reflected the ingenuity that had characterized the underground in the days of the Yishuv and now reflected the character of the IDF. The newly formed State of Israel knew that blood would flow to its very last drop if it was defeated 
and therefore they had no option other than to be ingenious and inventive at numerous points during the war. An army of, civilian, of civilians, engineers, and heavy equipment were conscripted to perform this nearly impossible task, creating a passable road from the valley below to the bluff on the ridge 150 meters above. With Jerusalem stranded and time running out before the ceasefire, if they did not move fast and decidedly, Jerusalem would be declared not part of Israel. I have read different versions as how the road came about. One version is that Shlomo Shamir, the front commander, said that we must be creative and think of a different solution. He and two other officers set out at night in a jeep along a footpath used by shepherds. After a ways, the hill got so steep they had no choice but to push their jeep up the hillside. Unbeknownst to them, an officer from Jerusalem, Eliyahu Sela, and a companion set out from Jerusalem, tracing the very same idea. Their two jeeps met in the middle of the night on the steep side of the hill. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. A different version that Howard Sacher writes has Colonel Mickey Marcus, an American Jewish volunteer and West Point graduate, serving as area commander for the road. He had been using a path south of Latrun and Bab el Wad to infiltrate troops on foot through the hills to Jerusalem. Marcus speculated that the path might be widened to enable trucks to pass through. Marcus's role in creating the impossible was dramatically retold in the stirring action movie of 1966 to cast a giant shadow, with a star-studded cast including Kirk Douglas as Mickey Marcus, and even includes John Wayne, who was helpful to the film in a non-acting way, and also includes Frank Sinatra as a pilot flying to assist the Israeli army. It's quite a surprise to see blue eyes dropping seltzer bottles on Arab tanks and scaring them by the exploding sound. Using the Burma Road alternate route, which was not visible to the high ground of Latrun, Haganah deployed a constant convoy of trucks filled with supplies, food, water, and materiel to choke off Jerusalem. When the trucks reached a point that was not traversable by vehicle, an army of civilian and military porters carried the supplies on their backs to atop the ridge where trucks were waiting for them. They worked around the clock without respite and in the toughest of conditions. Chaim Herzog, who would later become a member of parliament, and then president of Israel, was the son of Israel's chief rabbi. He later described, quote, I suggested that we put hundreds of porters at the bluff to take supplies from trucks which we could approach the orchard. Porters would then carry the supplies to the valley below, and trucks from Jerusalem would be waiting to take the supplies back to the city. Ben-Gurion immediately gave orders to supply everything that was needed. At night, against the backdrop of Jordanian shelling, the scene was almost unreal. Hundreds of porters silently carrying food and supplies down the hill to the waiting trucks and jeeps and even mules. Even herds of cows were led along this route as beef was also needed to be supplied to Jerusalem. Thanks to the cows and the donkeys, the schleppers had trekked through mounds of mule and cow dung so that each step up the steep bluff was accompanied by a new slippery squish. Remember, we're talking about supplying 100,000 residents with supplies for an undetermined amount of time. Accordingly, mules and porters were laboring down and up the slopes of a wide rift, 
for the road engineers had ruled that trucks could not traverse the dip and ordered a straight route cut through a granite outcropping. Dozens of stonecutters, all that could be found in Israel, were hammering and clanking away. Blasting was forbidden for fear that it would alert the enemy to the secret passage. So this and other stretches of the mountain were being hewn into an ingenious bypass by hand, as in ancient times. This momentous development opened up the supply route to Jerusalem even before the first truce was negotiated. Using bulldozers, tractors, and manual labor, the engineers began the nearly impossible task of carving a passable road to the bluff at the head of the orchard and a road to the valley below. Following this victory in the Judean hills, the first Jewish convoy proceeded to Jerusalem, laden with ammunition, provisions, and reinforcements. Only now did the drivers from the coastal plain realize what they had done. They had saved Jerusalem. Equally critical was the establishment of a secret pipeline to send water into besieged Jerusalem during the summer. Just one week before, the area had been scrubby wasteland. And now there were the makings of a road. Narrow, winding, broken by stony outcroppings, but still a discernible road. Stonecutters were attacking the obstructions by lamplight, and bulldozers were shoving aside the debris. To see what was accomplished, largely by hand, makes one marvel in incredulity at the near impossible, which shows what a people fighting for their homes, farms, families with their backs to the sea, could accomplish, somewhat akin to the British in 1940 facing Hitler. The Burma Road was not the only example of Israeli ingenuity during the war. They also developed the Davidka, in the absence of heavy weaponry. The Davidka is a crude three-inch mortar, what more often than not missed its target or failed to explode. It's called a Davidka because it symbolizes David with just a rock taking on Goliath. The Davidka's redeeming value was that when it did explode, which happened not all that regularly or in a way that we can really bank on it, it created a bright flash and an exceptionally loud noise which triggered panic among the Arabs. It was used most effectively in the battle for Jerusalem and in the battle for Safed. In Safed, the Arabs began to circulate rumors that Jews were using atom bombs and they fled for their lives. The Arab neighborhoods overnight turned into ghost towns. The same ingenuity was used by the fledgling Air Force that employed a sorry array of bombs and empty soda bottles they could get their hands on. When the bottles dropped, they created a whistling, whizzing note sound like incoming bomb that weakened the enemy's resolve. Frank Sinatra did a superb job portraying this and cast a giant shadow. And here comes Frank right now, crooning the impossible dream. The absolutely perfect lyrics to accompany the construction of the Burma Road. The film depicts an exasperated blue eyes with no bombs to fire at amassing enemy armor, but with incredulity he drops seltzer bottles that do no damage but their hissing, whizzing, and explosion clears the enemy the right off the battlefield. But still, Israel was seriously outgunned and the weapons purchased abroad had not yet arrived, and the international community, fearing a bloodbath, was interested in imp imposing a ceasefire. Both sides used the ceasefire to rearm themselves. 
which was forbidden by the terms of the ceasefire, and Israel ironically acquired from Czechoslovakia weapons that have been German arms in World War II. Kindly notify your family and friends about Teller from Jerusalem. Everyone appreciates a recommendation regarding free, insightful, and entertaining knowledge and wisdom. Thanks for listening to Teller from Jerusalem, where this series takes an intelligent and thought-provoking look at the past in order to acquire a perspective on the present. Spread knowledge by giving us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. Join us next time for a brand new episode and be sure to visit telefromjerusalem.com where you can find more details about the show and other useful information. Check out the site store and just by inserting TFJ code, you'll receive an additional 10% discount off the already very reduced prices of all Hanoch Teller products, books, lectures, and documentaries. And remember, don't forget, you can get Teller from Jerusalem on any podcast platform or go to telefromjerusalem.com.